What is the single greatest threat facing the American church today? What is the single greatest threat facing the American church today? Now, we can assume many things, right? We may assume that it's the progressive uh, theology prevalent in some mainline churches. We may assume that it's social ideologies that run contrary to a biblical worldview. We may assume that it's corrupt media bought out and paid for by political zealots. We may assume that it's an indoctrination of youth in the university system. Or we may just assume that it's political foes occupying seats of worldly power. Now, while all these assumptions are not without merit, they're still just assumptions. They're still just assumptions, and I fear woefully misguided assumptions. Woefully misguided assumptions. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, Dan, what are you, crazy? Do you not watch the news? Are you not paying attention to what's going on around you in the world today? Of course I am. I am well aware of what is going on in the world today. Does it rattle my cage? Of course it does. But here's the thing. We can't just pay attention to what is going on in the world today. We need to pay attention to what happened in the world 2,000 years ago. We need to pay attention to what happened in the world 2,000 years ago as Jesus gathered with his disciples on a hilltop somewhere in the wilderness of Galilee. You see, what happened there has a significant, significant implications for, for how we answer this question today. Now, what authority was given Jesus? This, the passage that Cindy just read for us, what authority was given to Jesus? We're told in Matthew 28, verse 16, that all authority all authority was given to Jesus. And what are the limits of all authority? What are the boundaries of all authority? There are heaven and earth. Heaven and earth. In other words, Jesus' authority is over all of the cosmos. His authority is universal. His authority is absolute. Progressive theology, social ideologies, corrupt media, ivory tower indoctrination, and political foes are all under the foot of the universally sovereign Messiah of the cosmos. Jesus is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He's the Alpha Omega. He's the beginning, and he is the end. Amen. Now, are these assumptions really threats? Are they really threats? Of course they are, right? Of course they are. But in the grand scheme of things, in the grand scheme of God's kingdom, these assumptions are nothing more than what Paul would refer to as momentary afflictions. Just momentary afflictions. So then, what is the single greatest threat facing the American church today? This morning, I'm going to contend the single greatest threat facing the American church today is pews. Pews filled with lethargic evangelicals who have failed to take up the commission that is implicit in their name. We are evangelicals not because we represent a voting bloc that represents the, the Christian right, a political movement. We are evangelicals because we are called to carry out the Great Commission, a spiritual movement. 
We are evangelicals because we make disciples. At least, that's what we're supposed to do. And to this point in our sermon series, we've been talking a lot about what it means to be a disciple. And I don't know about you, but I have been so encouraged as we have delved deeply into the Gospels and we have encountered Jesus there in a special way over the past few months as we have been learning what it means to be one of his disciples. Well, today we're, we're going to pivot. We're, we're, we're going to shift our focus from, from what it means to be a disciple to what it means to make disciples. As we begin our study we see that Jesus is gathered with his disciples on a hilltop in Galilee. Well, earlier in this chapter, Jesus appeared to several of his female disciples, and he gave them instructions. He told them to tell the remaining 11 disciples to, to leave Jerusalem and to go to Galilee. So we're told in verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him there, they worshipped him. But some, some were doubtful. Doubt is a terribly persistent thing. A terribly persistent thing. It is a constant companion in a life of faith and mortal toil. Even at our moments of greatest triumph, doubt can take a hold of us and grip us with fear. Even in the face of extraordinary evidence, Doubt can persist. The disciples literally cannot believe their own eyes. Now, this does beg a question. What specifically were they doubting? What was it that the disciples were doubting? You see, Jesus encountered all kinds of, of people who doubted him throughout the Gospels. They, they doubted who he was. They doubted what he taught. But here, here the text just says that they were doubtful. So what were they doubting? Were they doubting themselves? Their ability? Whether Jesus was really physically present with them? What were they doubting? Well, the text doesn't tell us. Moreover, commentators are hesitant to offer any firm answer to this question for the simple reason that Matthew keeps the matter kind of open-ended. He doesn't answer the question. In fact, he leaves room for all sorts of answers. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing because in leaving room for all sorts of answers, he leaves room for us. He leaves room for us. He leaves room for the nuance of our own doubts. Now, while we don't know why the disciples doubt it, Matthew does provide us with a hint and an insight to the nature of their doubt. See, the, the verb form of the word doubtful appears only one other time in the whole of the New Testament. In the same gospel, in Matthew 14, 31, a story that I'm, that I'm sure most, if not all of you, are familiar with. Right? Peter, bold as brass, jumps out of the boat and onto the water, and he begins to walk towards Jesus. And then what happens? Seeing the wind, he is gripped with fear, and he begins to sink. And then Matthew tells us, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took a hold of him and said to him, 
Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Doubt is a terribly persistent thing. Now, it's a curious fact that the disciples' worship here in Matthew was laced with doubt, right? We're not told that some of them worshiped and some of them doubted. We're told that they all worshiped and some doubted. They all worshiped and some doubted. Now, there's a subtle but a significant point of application in that for us this morning. See, we don't worship because we don't doubt. We don't worship because we don't doubt. We worship because we do doubt. We don't step out onto the water because we're confident that it will bear up our weight. We step out on the water because we want to be with Jesus, and we're hoping against all of our fears that we're going to be able to stand there with him. But if not, we're trusting that he's going to reach down and lift us up. I mean, notice that there's no rebuke here from Jesus. There's no correction. He doesn't chastise them for doubting. The reality of the disciples' doubt is just stated as a matter of fact. It just is what it is. It's reality. And so when Jesus calls them to once again join him out on the proverbial water, verse 18 Jesus came up to them and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What authority? All authority. Now, authority and power structures form a significant theme in the greater context of Matthew's gospel. Since chapter 21, a power struggle has been playing out between Jesus, the Pharisees, and Rome. So Jesus struck the first blow, right? He marched into Jerusalem where he leveraged his authority to write the power dynamics of the temple. The Pharisees then challenged Jesus' authority with a retort, and Jesus refused to answer their charges. Instead, he laid out his own set of charges in a series of cryptic parables. The Pharisees then set out on a campaign to entrap Jesus, but Jesus thwarted their attempts again and countered with his own set of woes against them. Then the Pharisees plotted to kill Jesus. Recruiting Judas to their initiative, I'm sure they thought they really got one on him on that one, right? Recruiting Judas to their initiative, they arrested him and assembled a kangaroo court, which in reality had no authority to do anything. So what did they do? They went to the real power broker. They went to Pilate, who ultimately handed him over for crucifixion. But then, then Jesus, in the ultimate power play, conquers death. He conquers death. At this point, the, the Pharisees' only retort was to cover the whole thing up with money and lies. They, they bribed the fear-stricken centurions who guarded Jesus' tomb. That's all they could do. Now, as we previously noted, the authorities of the world stand anemic before the authority of the Messiah of the universe. His authority is greater than the religious establishment. His authority is greater than Rome. His authority is greater than the enemy of all enemies, 
death itself. Therefore, therefore, Jesus said to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, Jesus' threefold commission to go baptize and teach. This commission is vested in, his, in the authority endowed to him by the Father. And with this authority, he commissions his disciples and authorizes them to go and turn the world upside down. He tells them to go, he tells them to baptize, and he tells them to teach. All right, so first he tells them to go. Now, go is intrinsically linked to the imperative to make disciples. In other words, to, 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 to make disciples, we have to go. Now, that's what makes us evangelicals. But, but somewhere along the way, as modern evangelicals, we've lost sight of who we are. On this point, Francis Chan writes this. He says, reading through the New Testament, it's not surprising to read that Jesus' followers were focused on making disciples. It makes sense in light of Jesus' ministry and the Great Commission. The surprise comes when we look at our churches today in light of Jesus' command to make disciples. Why is it that we see so little disciple-making taking place in the church today? Do we really believe that Jesus told his earlier followers to, to make disciples, but once the 21st century church do something different? None of us would claim to believe that. But somehow we have created a church culture where the paid ministers do the ministry and the rest of us show up, put some money in the plate, and feel, leaving inspired or fed. Now, what is Francis Chan getting at here? What is the bug in his crawl? This is what he's getting at. Go is not a commission for a select group of highly equipped individuals. It is not a commission for a select group of highly equipped individuals. It is not a commission exclusively reserved for the 11 disciples. It is not a commission exclusively reserved for missionaries or even pastors. Go is not a commission for some. Go is a commission for all. A significant problem with the mid-century missions movement of the 20th century, not actually so much the movement, but the way we viewed the movement, a significant problem with that movement was that it became an opportunity for the church to outsource the Great Commission. To outsource the Great Commission. Why go anywhere when you can drop some money in the plate, hang prayer cards on the fridge that picture people you never actually pray for, and then let them do all the going for you? That sounds like a good deal, right? He says facetiously. Now, in all fairness, I, I don't think the problem is with us as much as with our misguided notions. See, we tend to think very dualistically about things, very black and white. We, we tend to think of evangelism as one thing and discipleship as another. But according to Jesus, they're one and the same. There's no difference between the two things. They're the same. 
But as it is, we stress out about going because we think we need some sort of gift of evangelism that enables us to share the gospel with complete strangers on the street. Now, if that idea of evangelism scares you, let me empathize and affirm you this morning. I, Daniel Lyle, as one of your pastors, find that sort of evangelism terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. And I don't blame you if you find it terrifying either. It's a very narrow understanding of evangelism. I know an evangelist from Philadelphia who who boiled his testimony down to 20 seconds so that he could share the gospel at traffic lights. You do not have to be that guy to go. Dan and Michelle Dorr spent 28 years on the mission field advancing the gospel in Africa. You do not need to be Dan and Michelle to go. Paul and Kiki Mackey, as we heard last week, are using their gifts and content creation to help establish and advance the church in Japan. You do not need to be Paul and Kiki to go. You do not need to go to South Philly to make disciples. You do not need to go to Africa to make disciples. You do not need to go to Japan to make disciples. You don't need to go outside of this room to make disciples. You see, the call to go is more of a call to action than a call to a specific place. More of a call to action than a call to a specific place. Let me explain it this way. Mr. Fetters, Mr. Massey, Mrs. Burton, Malcolm Roach, Denise Roach, Jim Ryan, Mike Zeke, Mr. Wynn, Mr. Benner, Mr. Hamlin, and Bob Bell. These are hallowed and sacred names. People of renown and worthy of praise. At least they're worthy of my praise. You see, you have no idea who these people are. And that's okay. You have no reason to know who these people are. Not one of them is a well-known pastor or famous missionary. They're just normal people who were faithful to follow the call of Jesus to go. So who were they? Well, Mr. Fetters, Mr. Massey, and Mrs. Burton, they were three of my Sunday school teachers growing up. Mr. Fetters, who incidentally... He was my first grade Sunday school teacher, and I could not say Mr. Fetters, so it would come out as Mr. Feathers. <laughs> Mr. Fetters was a machinist. Mr. Massey had some sort of white-collar office job. Mrs. Burton, she was just a homemaker. But you know what? When she passed away, when I was in the sixth grade, in her 40s from cancer, I was absolutely devastated. Malcolm Roach, Denise Roach, Jim Ryan, and Mike Zeke, they were four of my youth leaders growing up. Malcolm, or Father Mal, as we referred to him, very confusing to Catholic kids coming to youth group. Father Mal was a flooring contract contractor. Denise Roach was a, a receptionist in a, in a doctor's office. 
Jim Ryan was a computer engineer, and Mike Zeke, well, he was just a toy store sales clerk, an aspiring missionary who eventually made his way to Thailand. What about these last four? Mr. Wynn, Mr. Benner, Mr. Hamlin, and Bob Bell. Well, they were my Christian service brigade leaders growing up. Mr. Wynn was a lineman for the power company. Mr. Benner was a, a, an over-the-road trucker. Mr. Hamlin was an electrician. And Bob Bell, he was just a high school student, not much older than me. But he was faithful to help me learn my memory verses. These are hollowed names. These are sacred names. None of them are well-known ministry moguls. They were just normal people faithfully following Jesus' call to go. In a sense, I'm a disciple of each one of them. In a sense, I suppose you are too. At least I hope you've benefited from their ministry to me as a kid. Now, incidentally, we have a wonderful example of this in our church. Uh, in uh, my, my son, Alex relationship with, uh, with Dave Weller. Um, my son adores Dave. And uh, Alec has been uh, helping out, volunteer, doing some volunteer work with the church during the week, and he's been helping to cut the lawn. Uh, Alec's 13 years old. This is his first time learning how to cut grass. And every week this summer, Dave has faithfully come alongside of him, teaching him how to cut the grass. Now, the first time he cut the grass, I asked Dave, I was like, how's it going? And uh, he said, well, it was kind of this at first. <laughs> then I taught him how to go in straight lines and overlap. Now, here's the thing. Dave is not a dynamic preacher or Bible scholar, at least not that I'm aware of, right? But he's a pretty faithful guy. A pretty faithful guy who's teaching my son something about faithful service. That's a beautiful thing. Why? Because Dave's just faithful to go. He's just faithful to go. And you know what? That is not a big flashy call, is it? It's mowing grass. Pretty monotonous, right? But he's faithful to go. A number of years ago, Susan was talking with one of her cousins, and her cousin said to her, did you hear? Did you hear my husband got the call? And Susan was like totally confused. She's like, the call? Like, like from the president? And after a little bit of forensic discussion, Susan realized, oh, she means a call to ministry. Now, we love to think about it that way, don't we? We love to think about it that way. Some of us have that sort of view, a romanticized view of God's calling, like it's some sort of mystical commission reserved for a select few. But it's not. It's not. Go is not a commission for a select group of highly equipped individuals. Go is not a commission for some. Go is a commission for all, without exception. Go is a commission for you, every single one of you. So this begs a question. This begs a question. Are you going? Do you, do you even have any idea where to go? 
Any idea where you're needed? Because it's incumbent upon all of us to go without exception. Where are you going? Wherever you go, Jesus tells us what to do. Verse 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, baptism is, is something that needs to be demystified in our modern age. 2,000 years of church history with all its schisms, reformations, denominations, councils, and creeds has clouded what is a very simple rite of passage. Baptism is a symbol, a symbol, a living illustration that, 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 that signifies our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism symbolizes our acceptance by and living communion with the fullness of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and our total commitment to Him and to His church. If you understand the gospel, then you understand baptism. It really is that simple. I just told you everything you need to know. Unfortunately, Our need to demystify baptism has led, I believe, to a somewhat problematic delay in obedience. You see, scholars tell us that according to the sentence structure of this verse, the imperative to make disciples is fulfilled by baptizing and teaching in that order. However, that's not the way we traditionally do it, is it? We we tend to put the teaching before the baptism. Addressing this disorder, R.T. France writes, the order in which baptism and teaching occur differs from what has become common practice in subsequent Christian history. In that baptism is, in many Christian circles, administered only after a period of teaching. It can become in such circles more of a graduation ceremony than an initiation. If the order of baptism and teaching is meant to be noticed, Jesus is here presenting a different model, whereby baptism is the point of enrollment into a process of learning, which is never complete. The Christian community is a school of learners at various stages of development, rather than divided into the baptized who have arrived and those who have not. Now, if we stop and we think about it, this makes good sense, right? This makes good sense. Baptism publicly signifies a believer's devotion to God and his alignment with the church, a a critical issue for a first century church that was about to encounter really significant persecution. Moreover, Peter preached the gospel and 3,000 people were baptized on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people. In a single day, they didn't didn't have time to cram in a seven-week Sunday school course on baptism. Go look it up for yourself. The text is clear. They heard the gospel, they understood the gospel, and they responded to the gospel in obedience. They heard it, they understood it, and they responded. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. Listen to what I'm saying, not what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we as a church should haphazardly baptize people. But neither should we delay baptism unnecessarily. 
And for those of you who are delaying obedience, the question for you is why? What are you waiting for? You need to wrestle that one down. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. Last week, we held a baptism at the church picnic. And uh, several people were baptized, including Mike Letourneau. And if you were there, I'm sure you remember his testimony. I asked for his permission to share this with you today. Listen to this. I was born in Shrebrooke, Quebec, the middle child of three to loving Baptist parents. I was raised attending several Baptist churches and along the way and taught to love Jesus who I accepted as my Lord and Savior at a very young age. Despite my upbringing and having two uncles who served the Lord as Baptist pastors, I have been able to successfully avoid being baptized until today. <laughs> Despite, I'm uh, sorry, with a little encouragement from my wife and my mother, earlier this week I asked Pastor Brian if I could be baptized today alongside my son and daughter who had already made this decision. Pastor Brian granted my late request, so of course I immediately began searching the Bible for verses regarding baptism that I could somehow use as a loophole to get out of being baptized. <laughs> my search led me to the conclusion based on Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20, although I am firm in my belief that I am saved by the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as a Christian, I am commanded to be baptized. After much procrastination, I am here today, ready to obey. Mike obeyed, and as the old children hymn goes, obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Incidentally, Josh Layton, uh, Nicole Green's boyfriend, he was also baptized last week at the picnic. Not wanting to pressure him, Pastor Brian told him, like, listen, Josh, you don't have to get baptized if you're not ready. You know how Josh responded? He said to Pastor Brian, why would I wait? Why would I wait? If you haven't been baptized yet, that is a, a worthwhile question for you to consider. Why would I wait? What am I waiting for? Why am I delaying obedience? That's a worthwhile question to wrestle down. All right, so Jesus says that we need to go, we need to baptize. He gives us a third thing. He says we must teach. Verse 20, Jesus says to his disciples, he says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, it is entirely possible to be a, a Bible-preaching church that teaches the Word of God with academic precision yet never makes a single disciple. Entirely possible. How is that possible, you may wonder? Well, one commentator notes, Jesus is not speaking about education for education's sake. He speaks of teaching as observing what Jesus has commanded. 
In other words, Jesus is concerned with a way of life. A way of life. Jesus does not care about filling our heads up with a bunch of information. He's concerned about what we do with that information, how we live it out. So to really understand what Jesus is getting at here, we need to consider his teaching a model, or his teaching model, the way he teaches. You see, when Jesus taught, things got crazy. When Jesus taught, things got messy. Remember, baptism, the initiation, comes before the teaching. That's, gonna, that's bound to make for problems. When Jesus taught, th- things got messy. He was constantly putting his disciples in situations they were not prepared for. He was constantly putting them in way over their heads, as we saw with Peter earlier, literally in over his head, right? He was constantly putting them in situations they were not prepared for, situations in which they were completely over their heads. And you know what? They failed a lot. They often failed in faith. They often failed in understanding. They often failed in mission. They often failed in observing what they had been taught. In fact, the very first mission that Jesus ever sends the disciples on, they fail. They fail. Now, this has led some commentators to conclude that Jesus' teaching methods, by all outward appearance, seemed kind of reckless. However, Jesus understood something that is often lost on us as modern people. Jesus understood that there is no better way to learn than by doing. If you're going to learn the way of Jesus, well, then you're going to have to walk the way of Jesus. My daughter was in uh, auto mechanics at the tech school last year. And uh, every day I'd pick her up from school and and every day I would ask her, what did you wrench on today? And nearly every day she would reply, nothing, we were just doing book work. This drove me insane. This drove me absolutely mad. It drove me crazy because they took a trade-based skill and they shoehorned it into a classical learning environment. Listen, how many kids are going to wash out of auto mechanics because they can't get their heads wrapped around compression? But if they could get their hands wrapped around an engine, seeing how compression works in real time, well, then it might click. They might start to understand the concept, and they might just stick with it. Now, there's a lesson in that for us today. If we're going to make disciples as a church, then we need to let people get their hands dirty. We need to make room for failure. I've been here at Living Hope for almost 13 years. I was uh, 31 when we moved here. I am now 43. In my time here, I have failed a lot. Some of you are like, yes, we are well aware. We know. I have failed here 
a lot, but you know what? I've also grown here a lot. You all have made a significant investment in me, and hopefully you've seen some fruit along the way, and hopefully you all have benefited from it. There's a lesson in that for us today. Let me give you another example. When I first announced that Dylan Schremer was going to take over the youth ministry, I got a lot of blank stares and questions like, is he qualified? Now, in all fairness, he did grow up in this church. I think he was like 11 years old when we moved here. But every time I was confronted with these questions, my answer was the same. Every single time. I would say, Dylan is infinitely more qualified to lead the youth ministry than the person who is more qualified but not willing. Infinitely more qualified. Now here we are a year and a half later, and we've gone from zero students a week to an average of 20 students a week. Now this was, this, breaking this barrier for Dylan, it, it was hard. It was hard. On, on weeks when he only had four or five students, he, he was tempted to, to set his lesson aside and just play games. And, and sometimes we did, right? Hasn't been all peaches and cream. But, but I kept pushing him. Teach the lesson anyway. Teach the lesson anyway. Just go to the kids who are there. Do it anyway. The breakthrough it will eventually come. And you know what? It did. Now, here's the thing. Do you think it's possible that Dylan now understands something about diligence and, and faithfulness that he would not have understood if I, as the more qualified guy, did all the work for him and gave him no opportunity to fail? He's grown because we've given him room to grow, and he's doing a great job. Now, on this point, R.T. France's insights are once again helpful. He writes, and he says, Jesus' final words in the gospel are often referred to as the Great Commission. And scholars have pointed out how closely this scene resembles in its overall sense and content, if not detail, the commissioning narratives which occur throughout the Old Testament, where God's often reluctant and inadequate servants are sent out to fulfill his purpose with the assurance of his empowering and his presence to go with them. Such stories are, are told notably of Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Such stories mark the beginning, not the end of that person's service. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Gideon, Samuel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah all ill-equipped, all failures, also all success stories. If we're going to make disciples as a church, then it is going to get messy. But as Simon Sinek says, it is better to go in a crooked line and get somewhere than to go in a straight line and go nowhere. Church, I want to bring you up to speed on something that I'm fairly confident you are not aware of. Uh, I've only been aware of this myself for about two months now. 
Church, if you want to have a church 10 years from now, then things are going to have to get messy and they're going to have to get messy quick. I, by, I began my sermon with a provocative statement. I said, the single greatest threat facing the American church today is pews filled with lethargic evangelicals who have failed to take up the commission that is implicit in their name. Church, the American pastorate is dying. It's dying. The average age of a senior pastor in America has risen from 42 to 57 over the past 10 years. There are now more American pastors over 65 than under 40. Baby boomer pastors are retiring at unprecedented rates. There's projected to be a 40% turnover in senior pastors over the next decade, and there is no one to replace them. No one. There are no 30 and 40-something pastors waiting in the wings. None. This is not an exaggeration. Seminaries and Bible colleges are closing up left, right, and center. Nyack, one of the biggest Christian schools in the country, just shut its doors. When I was hired here as, as the worship pastor a little more than 10 years ago, I was one of literally hundreds of applicants for the position. My friend is now hiring for the same position in his church down in Derry. Do you know how many applicants he got? Five. You know how many of them were viable candidates? Zero. I know of another church in New Hampshire that paid a headhunting firm to run a national search for a new pastor. Do you know how many applications they got? Ten. Ten. Church, the American pastorate is dying. Now, is that the world's fault? Nope. Is that liberal media's fault? Nope. Is that Washington's fault? Nope. Church, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Because having a commission, we neglected it. And in our neglect, we've become our own greatest threat. That is a heavy reality that I think we need to sit in. We need to come to terms with. We're on Facebook fighting social wars where we have no authority. But Jesus, the Messiah of the universe, has given us authority to go to baptize and teach. And we treat it like it's nothing. Where are we at? Where are we going? What's going to happen? This, this, this petrifies me. What's going to happen to the church? If there's no one there to lead it, 
because no one bothered to take the time to make disciples. I want to leave you on a note of hope this morning. I don't want to leave you in a place of despair. I do think it's important. It is a weighty issue. We need to seriously think about it. And we are talking about this at an elder and staff level of how are we going to equip and train and bring up the next generation of leaders. And, and, and we're talking about it, how are we going to empower you? So, so there's solutions that we're working on to help mobilize you. We're not looking for you to go out and create something. We, we want to empower you and mobilize you to, to act. But in the meantime... Let me leave you with this hope. Our commission is still great. Our commission is still great. It is as great as the one who committed himself to be with us always, even to the end of the age. If we commit ourselves to go, if we commit ourselves to baptize, if we commit ourselves to teach, then I am confident that we can right our neglect. I am confident that the Great Commission can still produce a great outcome. I am confident that we can, that we can right our neglect. We just need to think differently about how we do it. We just need to think differently about how we do it. So consider this with me. How many next generation pastors, ministry leaders, and missionaries are downstairs in the children's ministry right now. More importantly, what are you willing to do to help them succeed? Not someone else, you. What are you willing to do to help them succeed? Not only that, how many, how many next generation pastors, ministry leaders, and missionaries are in this room right now? If that's one of you, maybe you're a teenager, here, I was no older than 15 when I knew that I wanted to become a pastor. No older than 15. And I have never pursued another direction in my life. My youth pastor built into me in a tremendous way. And I knew by his example that I wanted to do that. Man, maybe that's something worth you going after. Maybe that's something worth you going after. Maybe you think you don't have anything to offer because you're just a kid. That's not true. Maybe that's something worth you going after. The pay stinks, but the retirement is excellent. I think you should consider it. And those of you who are around him who are older, you're already doing your thing, you're establishing your careers, what are you going to do to help? What are you going to do to come alongside of them? You see, our church has a heritage of raising up kids and sending them into ministry. I can think of at least five people off the top of my head. Dan and Michelle Dorr, Bethany Miller, Zoe Jameson, and Linda Trask. And I think there's probably more. In fact, if you know of them, I do really want to hear about that, please let me know. We have a rich heritage of putting kids in the ministry. Church, let's not let our heritage become nothing more than history. Let's go, 
let's baptize, let's teach. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for commissioning your son. Thank you for commissioning him to enter into this world. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he gave himself up for us all, taking on the form of a servant, coming in human flesh. He died on a cross, humbling himself so that we could encounter you. Jesus, let us not take our own redemption so lightly. Let us not take the outcome of his commission so lightly. And our commission that he gives us, may we go, may we baptize, and may we teach, and may we turn this world upside down through Christ's power. Lord, we know, though we get distracted, though our our temporal hearts get so wrapped up in this world, Lord, we know that the power of the world and the hope of the world never has and never will reside in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. That is a fleeting hope at best. The hope of the world is Jesus Christ. The hope of the world is communion with him in his kingdom. Lord, may we not take that lightly. Lord, burden our hearts to go. Burden our hearts to see people identified with you through baptism. Burden our hearts to teach them and see them grow to walk in your way. Amen.